Chris, you're the only one that doesn't have a Beta 58. No, I have a Royer AEA ribbon mic. I have to use it because I bought it. <laughs> so <laughs> going Mine's really basic. Yeah. It's like I'm just going into my computer, the little jack in the back, and going into Ableton Live. And, and Jim so. likes to do that live looping thing when he's on the show. So that's why he has to use Ableton. Sure. I'm sampling you guys right now. <laughs> Hi, well, welcome to Lost and Found and Rewound, a podcast where the host's comedic jabs are so subtle, they are indiscernible to the listeners, and at some point will hedge on elder abuse. I'm Chris Lost. Uh, I'm Found Jim. And I'm Rick Rewound. And, and building off of that, you know, the last fast forward episode was kind of contentious. And one of the suggestions was uh, Rick suggested that I be replaced on the show with my brother-in-law. So um, I was thinking about that and I was starting to think that that might be an upgrade for the show. It's many the, the parallax view test. You failed the parallax view test. You not only so many didn't the like the movie, but then the only part of the movie you liked was the one to find the sociopath the test That's for true. finding the sociopath so yeah which i passed i like passing tests many of the films i watch uh my brother-in-law either recommends to me or has also watched uh, my only defense there is that some of what he's into particularly horror i feel i shaped when he was younger uh, all of the celebrity stories i tell and we tell a lot on the show now are because i'm just hanging around his life they are essentially secondhand celebrity stories, so you could get them firsthand from him. A lot of my humor is inspired by my brother-in-law. He's the funniest person I know. Again, in my defense, I think I influence some of his humor, but uh, if so, he's taken what I do comedically and ran with it far beyond my capabilities. And finally, he's got a better singing and speaking voice than me. So recruiting him would be bringing a true talent to the podcast. So in summary, I second Rick's motion to replace me on the show. So here is your new host, Michael McLost. <laughs> Welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks. Um, I Thanks for the heads up that I'm hosting another podcast. I appreciate it. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more uh, warning in the future. would be good, but I'm happy to... Uh, like, one day I will dig your grave that you will be buried <laughs> into. I will take over this podcast for you. <laughs> Michael... Michael really resents the fact that I <laughs> when we were having a few drinks, maybe a few too many drinks... I made him promise that he would dig my grave by hand. <laughs> because I think, and, I, and he'll understand why I did that when he's, when he's digging it. Like, he doesn't get it now, but like, if you've ever dug a grave for someone or something, it's a very therapeutic oh, yeah. event. Maybe I'm overestimating my influence on him and that he won't need that therapy, but... To start things off on a very dark note, this comes from the fact that Chris has somehow uh, been assigned to, I think, dig most of the graves for the family pets that have passed away. Almost all. Almost all. <laughs> including your parents' animals. I thought you were just um, including my parents. If you were environmentally <laughs> conscientious, it would be just a hemp bag dropped in the forest, right? Your body wouldn't require any digging. No, man. No. We should say, and you know, we don't do a lot about uh, uh, specifics about ourselves on the show, but we should say that uh, this is the one guest who has actually been the star 
of a movie, a real movie that's come out in the movie theaters. <laughs> that's He's, that's about as much as you can say about the movie. <laughs> it was a real so- movie. I was the lead in it, and it came out in theaters. <laughs> I paid Good money job. to see it in the theater. I've seen you in several films in theaters, by the way. Uh, he's been in several TV shows. He's He does podcasts. He's done theater. He's been the lead in several theatrical productions. Yep. Yeah, And his name's Michael McLost. So there you go. <laughs> There's his credits. <laughs> Look him up on IMDb. I, you know, it's funny. I had We had a listener on our... I do a podcast called Bigfoot Collectors Club. It's a paranormal show every film that's made there is an audience member for it and i was reminded recently because i was sort of snarking on the hills have eyes too and uh i got an email from a listener who was like hey man don't you should not make fun of that movie i love that movie and you were really good in it (laughs) (laughs) it's it was a nice reminder to be like yeah that's true i shouldn't make fun of stuff that i do because there is somebody who does genuinely enjoy it. And, you know, I did work very hard on that film. Well, one time Michael said to me, we we're, again, having a couple drinks, and I was lamenting about, I think, a record that our band had done or something, or, or the fact that nobody listened to our music, I think was what I was lamenting. And he, he said, You'll be, you'd be surprised. There's a fan for everything. <laughs> so there's the, basically the message was... Oh, so I've, I've imparted this wisdom before. Just to me, over oh, okay. drinks, you know. Yeah, I forget my own wisdom sometimes. That's that's the kind of thing that puts me into a spiral of depression then because it means, well, yeah, there's a fan for everything, but then that just means, you know, if if there are 10 people that love it, but then nobody else does, it still seems like, well, there's a fan for everything, and that means that if it if no more people listen to it, then it's probably not good. <laughs> Except it's fantastic to those 10 people. It's good to them. Yeah, I mean, if they get it, who cares? There's a formula. If you want to be famous, just follow the formula, and then you'll be okay. Just start writing songs that follow Hold the on, formula. I'm taking notes. <laughs> if I want to be famous. Michael, <laughs> um, formula. you know, we, we have an odd timeline here, and, and however you may look at it, um, either three weeks ago, or one week ago, or... 16 months ago. You guys, we this, talk- po- this podcast numbering is, it's like a Chris Nolan film. <laughs> I cannot make sense of it. And I've listened to the, like I said, the whole thing. It's Suffice very, it- like sometimes <laughs> you are talking about an episode that has, this like not only like not dropped yet, but it's like a month away. Yeah. And there's like two in between. <laughs> Well, you have to pay attention the, to the little arrows on the title, right? Yeah. I didn't even I've, catch that until a couple... Yeah, that uh, whole... The whole idea of putting uh, coding into your into your numbering system for a, a podcast that's about anal- basically based on analog uh, media. <laughs> Look, suffice it to say, at some point in the history of the podcast, we mentioned that you have an amazing Kim Kardashian story. Oh. And I and I did not tell the story, even though it was recently told to me by your sister. Do you remember the yeah, whole story? Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 of course. And about the whole thing that you thought yes. you might be blamed for? Okay. Yes. Could yeah, you, yeah, would, yeah. would you care to share that story with us since I mentioned it and then did did you the respect of not telling the story? Yeah. I did I'll try telling this in the vaguest terms possible. Um <laughs> So I was at a big Hollywood party uh, a few years back. 
<laughs> so I was there with my sister, who is uh, the wife. She's, you know, wife lost. And um, we went to a party, an after party from the Golden, at the Golden Globes, the Vanity Fair party. And we were there and we saw, you know, there's a lot of famous people around. And I saw from across the room Kim Kardashian. And this is pre-Kanye. She's, you know, she's a star, but she's still kind of like, she's not where she is now, but she was still very famous. Post-Reggie Bush. Post, yes. And she was quite truthfully maybe the most beautiful woman I've, I've ever seen in, in person. And I turned to my sister and I said, oh, my God, she's gorgeous. And she goes, I know. I go, she honestly looks better than anyone here. And this was a time in my life where I had a little bit of impulse control when it came to flirting, where I, that's, that's maybe an overstatement. But, it, but if, I, if I, I, I felt compelled to say something to her. So Sarah Loss says, do it, go, go say hi to her. So I approach her and she's sitting with a bunch of her family and a bunch of people and they're sort of in a corner booth. There's maybe... I don't know, I'd say a good 10 people sitting around this table, and she's close to the edge, so I can approach her, and I, I go up to talk to her, and I'm still thinking, like, what am I going to say? And I was like, hi, and I introduced myself, and I said, I- I'm sorry, I just have to say, we're surrounded by movie stars, and you are by far the most beautiful person at this at this party, you look great. And she said, well, thank you, and she, and she was about to ask me something, and I don't remember what she asked me, Because at that point, and I'm sorry if this is crude for your listeners, the worst smell I have ever experienced. It smelled like hot diarrhea had just been directly injected into my into my like nasal receptors. Wafts up and I become so paralyzed because I'm so scared that she thinks I just walked over and just ripped a hellacious <laughs> fart. So I quickly backed out of there. I was like, well, it's so nice to meet you. Bye. Thank you so much. And Making you look even more guilty. Yeah, ma- but I, you don't understand. This was... I was already a little nervous, and then it was like the worst possible thing. The only worst possible thing could be is if I actually had shat my pants in front of <laughs> Kim Kardashian, which now that I think about it is a way better story. But so I, I leave, and I'm now I'm, I'm incredi- incredibly embarrassed, and I start thinking, gosh, I really hope she doesn't think that was me. So about 30 minutes pass, and I see her get up to leave, and I say to Sarah Lost, I got to go say something. She's like, no, no, don't. <laughs> and I got up and I walked over to her and I said, hey, I just got to let you know, I don't know what that smell was, but it was not me. <laughs> and she said, she laughed and goes, oh, my God, I know. We think, I think I know who did it. And, she, and, then, <laughs> and then just walked away. I love that story. I think it makes Kim look nice, right? Yeah, she's uh, she was ama- I, I, she's amazing. Second nicest celebrity I've ever ever met. The first being Bill Paxton. Hmm. Bill Paxton was the best. He was the best. And could you explain for Jim's 
Could you explain to Jim who Kim Kardashian is? <laughs> um, she's an influencer. She's a reality star. She's right. a a, uh, a movement maker, <laughs> and soon to be lawyer. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, good for her, Michael. Thank you for that story. Uh, what have you been watching? We usually ask what people have been watching. Why don't we ask you, our special guest, what you've been watching? Uh, I have a long list. I know some of these have been mentioned on the show, but in addition to the films covered in the first seven episodes, I've watched for the first time Red Dawn. Uh, the remake uh, or the... Uh, the original, the original yeah. 19, what is it, 85, 85 84? Yeah. You just passed Rick's test, Rick's sociopath <laughs> test. You know, it's funny because I, I tend to want to watch remakes, which we'll get into later in this episode, obviously, but uh, I, I didn't... I lo- I was surprised, first of all, how epic that film was. I didn't realize that it took place over the course of like months. I thought it was like, a, I thought it was like, you know, one of the, I thought it was like a diehard where it took place in one night and the kids like get the Russians out of their town. I didn't realize it was like a, almost like a Civil War era level, you know, epic journey. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised by that, but I, I it was so good I didn't I was like I, I'm not gonna watch the remake to this why why would I do that? Um, I watched Solo, a Star Wars movie for uh, the third time, uh, which I think is a very underrated uh, Star Wars film. Uh, the Decline of Western Civilization parts one and two, Texas Chainsaw Massacre parts one and two, The Fog, John Carpenter film, the original. Mm. Uh, and then I really got into Joe Bob Briggs' last drive-in show on Shudder, uh, which I'm a su- subscriber to. And it's like a throwback to the old, like, Up All Night, you know, Elvira, Monster Monster Vision, you know, uh, movies where they'll, they'll play a double feature and they kind of cut in between where the commercial breaks would be. And sometimes they have actors on or the director on. It's great. I highly recommend it. And they show a lot of obscure um, and horror and cult films. Um, through that, I watched uh, not so obscure, but uh, The Exorcist Three for the first time, which Chris has been chastising me for not seeing for a long time. Classic film. Speaking of Ari Aster, yeah, uh, which we can debate this in a minute. Um, Dead Heat, the Joe Piscopo zombie cop movie, wow, uh, which is terrible, but 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 fun. Uh, uh, Slumber Party Massacre 2 and Slumber Party Massacre 1, which I, I for- failed to mention. The Winged Serpent. Have you guys seen that film? Q? Yeah. The Winged Serpent with yeah. uh, Michael... Uh, oh, what was his name? Oh, uh, yeah. Moriarty? Me. Yeah, no. that was yeah. Uh, a pretty cool one. Um, they actually That's the movie where the director got access to the top of the Chrysler building while it was being renovated and they brought a bunch of guys up there with like uh semi-automatic rifles and just got shot from the crow's nest of (laughs) the chrysler building of these guys shooting guns into the air to fight an invisible uh soon to you know later later added um stop motion creature that's a great that's an old film though yeah it's from the 70s so, so the creature was stop motion. Yeah, it's they like sort of it. a Harryhausen-esque. Uh, it's creature. it's that guy, right? The guy who wrote like Phone Booth and right. Is that the same guy? The yeah, let me pull it up. Larry right now. Uh, guy, I can't remember his name. He did like horror movies, and then then he just wound up doing script writing, right? Yeah, he was. Um, 
He's kind of this cult director. Yeah, Q, the winged serpent. Uh, the director is... Uh, Q stands for Quetzalcoatl, Yeah, right? Quetzalcoatl, which is <laughs> the winged plumed serpent yeah. of, uh, of the Mayans. Now Rick has passed God. the sociopath test. <laughs> uh, Larry Cohen was the writer and director. Larry Cohen. David Carradine's in that film as well. So, Chris, you should. I, I recommend you checking that one out. I want to see it. I always wanted to see it. Uh, Madman, which is an early um, slasher flick about a, uh, a man with a hatchet who kills off lots of teens. And I made a pretty fun observation about the evolution of slasher films that... I think I can share uh, in a bit if you're interested. Uh, House of the Devil, which is fantastic. Chris, you watched that one as well. That's the that's the '70s style horror film that came out about ten years ago. Uh, it's got it's like one of Greta Gerwig's early films in a supporting role. I have role. not watched it yet. I watched oh. House. Okay, uh, the House of the Devil. Highly recommend that film. Uh, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night Two. Uh, I watched uh, Now We're Getting Out of Joe Bob Briggs. I watched Mystify, the Michael Hutchins documentary, which Chris mentioned. Uh, Tammy and the T-Rex, which if none of you have seen, is a must-watch. Friend of the show, uh, I'll just call him W, told me to check that one out. Um, it's fantastic. It's an early Paul Walker movie, Denise Richards' Paul Walker, where Paul Walker's brain gets... Uh, it's a mad scientist movie where Paul Walker's brain is implanted in an uh, animatronic Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> and it's the wildest thing you will ever watch. Uh, the Reanimator, uh, From Beyond, Dagon, all films by Stuart Gordon. Dagon is great. All three are based on H.P. Lovecraft stories. And Dagon is like from 2003. It's a fish based horror film and i highly recommend that one it's uh it's cheap i think i've heard that story yeah that story the hp lovecraft it's great i really enjoyed it it's an oddball little movie but i recommend that one you'll not see anything like it uh brain damage which was great i loved brain damage um do the right thing sorry to bother you society another body horror film uh, had never seen Blue Velvet, so I watched, I watched that for the first time. Had never seen Wild at Heart. Um, some of these oh, are embarrassing wow. to admit. I loved that one. Best Nicolas Cage performance I can think of, although I haven't seen Moonstruck either. That's on my list. Uh, the Long Goodbye, which I loved. Uh, House, which was uh, mentioned, the original um, 1979, have, I think. Have you guys seen Japanese that? Japanese horror film, comedy. I've, I've heard stuff about it. Yeah, no, I've. I don't. Think oh, you guys got to watch that movie. Yeah, it is. I know. It is beautiful. I can't believe I had never seen that film. Once I saw it, I was like, "This is missing. This is like filling a void in my life that I didn't realize." I, I, and I, it's one of those movies where you're like, "I didn't realize you can make this kind of movie with so many uh, clashing tones that seem to harmonize for inexplicable reasons." Um, it's fantastic. Bill and Ted, the Bill and Ted trilogy, which was uh, I'd seen before except for part three, uh, which I enjoyed. Basic Instinct, which I'd never seen all the way through. Uh, I'd only seen select scenes from that film, and which is really fascinating because as a teenager, I'm sure you can guess which scenes those were. Uh, but now as an adult, those were the least interesting parts of the movie, and I really appreciated how much of... Uh, I'm really, I really started appreciating Veer... I've always enjoyed Verhoeven, but 
I really like his ability to take any genre of movie and be able to make his take on it. So that's obviously a big Hitchcock film. It's just him doing Hitchcock. And then the film after that, of course, is Showgirls, which, again, I'd never seen all the way through. Uh, And that's just his take on an MGM, big MGM sort of musical, except it's, you know, Vegas and Showgirls. And I actually really love that. I love Kyle MacLachlan. Um, I thought that was a very underrated movie. Uh, I saw The Booksellers, which is a documentary about book collectors in New York, which is fantastic. Uh, Crawl, the alligator movie. Relic, the horror film. Palm Springs, which is a Hulu original with Andy Samberg and uh, Kristen Malati, which is great. Oh, yeah. Uh, I saw that. I, that. Yeah, I liked yeah, it. Yeah, I really liked it. I was surprised. Yeah. Um, and then I got into a good run on De Palma, uh, there's a bunch of De Palma films I had not seen. I realized that I've only seen the bad De Palma films. Uh, <laughs> so I saw Blowout for the first time, which was fantastic. And I told Chris that was one that he talked about a lot when I was when we were younger. And I'm really surprised you hadn't uh, shown that one to me. That was great. So that that was a you movie were a that little I, young. Yeah, little that was a movie that, that I felt was missing from my life, and then I found like when it. I you mean I would talk about it because then I would take Michael when he was 16 to go drinking with me. <laughs> And uh, I uh, would would wouldn't let him see Blowout because he was just a little too young to see a rated R film. <laughs> uh, I'm getting close to the end of the list. Did, here. I, I, my question always when people see Blowout though is if you've seen Blow Up, the Antonioni I haven't, film. So that's that's on the list <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah, you gotta gotta watch that. That's what I yep. immediately said to him. Yep, and that's what you used to say <laughs> back then too, which is you gotta watch Blow Up too. Um, Blow Up has the only, I think, the only film of uh, the Yardbirds with both Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck in them in, at the same time. Jimmy Page yeah. and Jeff Beck were in the Yardbirds together for like a couple Three. months. Yeah. Wow. Three months, yeah. <laughs> and a young Donald Trump. If you watch the, the lead character in that <laughs> film, looks exactly like young oh, Donald Trump. Oh, man. <laughs> well, now I'm oh, conflicted. David Hemmings, right? <laughs> if I want to watch it or not. Oh, tragic. Yeah. He is a kind of golden boy. He was, yeah. Looks just like Trump. (laughs) You can ruin the movie for me. There's also a Trump reference at the beginning of Wolfen, if you guys have ever seen that film. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a character who's a big New York uh, rich guy who they're like, I think even in the movie they're like, he could have been president one day. And it's (laughs) sort of like spooky how much that character in retrospect really tracks to be like Donald Trump. Uh, body Double, Dressed to Kill, Phantom of the Paradise. Ooh. Sister- <laughs> that one is great. <laughs> I've so- got the, the vinyl, the soundtrack to that. Chris, I- have you ever seen that? Sticks? The Sticks record? No. Phantom of the Paradise? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I know, I've never seen Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, I've seen Kiss Meets the Phantom. Right. Oh, yeah. I've heard <laughs> Rock in the Paradise, the Par- or Paradise Theater by Sticks, which is a record. Just kind of mix all that stuff together, and then you get... Is that what it is? It's like the Kiss film with the Sticks record over it? Uh, Sisters, which was great. Uh, The Untouchables, which I'd never seen, which is brilliant. Totally holds up. Uh, The Owl and the Pussycat, because of What's Up, Doc. I watched that film. Uh, Brian, De Palma, Brian De Palma didn't do that movie though. No, I'm moving no, on. Okay, no, you're moving on. <laughs> so you didn't see what's the what's the one with Kirk Douglas, and it's all shot in Chicago around the same time as Blues Brothers: The Fury. Yeah. Oh, I'll watch oh. this. Oh, for that's sure. that's just great to watch to see Chicago in 
1979, 1980. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many shots of just like the lakefront and everything, and the movie itself is. I'll de- I'll definitely watch it. My my uh, this is I should have warned that this list is sort of meandering, and uh, but I I'm gonna get back to all the De Palma films for sure. Uh, have you guys ever seen The Owl and the Pussycat? I don't think so. It's got uh, what's his name, George Siegel. Uh, Yes, George Siegel no. yeah. and uh, Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand. Yeah. It's based on a play that was uh, the George Siegel role was originated by Alan Alda, and my my guess is that because this film is in 1970, that Alan Alda was not yet big enough to be the lead in the film, and then the character. How played dare by, you, sir? <laughs> not big enough yet, and uh, and then the Barbara Streisand role was originally played by. Uh, an African-American actress in the play, and then they recast the role with young Barbara Streisand. And it it does, if you watch the film with that knowledge, it seems that the interracial couple, uh, like, storyline would have made a lot more sense if that's actually what they did for the film. Um, Because you kind of spend the movie going, what's... Why are these two people uh, so conflicted about being together? <laughs> you know what I mean? When I think it was supposed to be a commentary uh, of, of the times. And so you're just, they just kind of come off as just two crazy people the whole time, you know? But if you're like, oh, this would have, this actually would have made, this is actually like a, making a really lovely social commentary that is completely lost and bungled in the, in the filmmaking of it. Um, um, on, on the Alan Alda, not famous enough yet. Thing, have you ever seen To Kill a Clown with oh, Alan Alda? Yeah, yeah. Where he plays the uh, paralyzed Vietnam War veteran with the Doberman Pinschers terrorizing a young hippie couple. <laughs> One of whom <laughs> yeah, is... Yeah, definitely playing against the uh, cast. Yeah, oh, it's, it's amazing. And Blythe Danner is the, uh, the oh, hippie, yeah. hippie wife. Wow. I, the guy who played the clown, hippie clown guy, I don't think made another movie, or might have, but definitely... Out of the three main characters, was the that guy. around the time, same time as the the day the clown cried that lost Jerry <laughs> Lewis? Was, yeah, yeah, clown yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah. This this is more. Yeah, I well, I don't. I have to watch it again. I think it's anti-clown, whereas I think the day the clown cried is pro-clown. Right? I'm assuming. <laughs> I would. I would having assume, not seen it. I've never yeah. seen it. No one has. That's the. What, 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 and what's oh. the story behind that? It's just so bad. It never came out. Yeah, he gave up. And I, I heard a, a story that's probably not true, but somebody said that Jerry Lewis was trying to edit it while Stanley Kubrick was editing 2001. Yeah, Whoa. 68, right? Day the Clown Cried? Maybe it's... It's, it's 72, it says. 72, unfinished. so it would have been um, would have been Clockwork Orange, but uh, Jerry Lewis supposedly said to Stanley Kubrick, who asked him how it was going, he said, you know what, you can't polish a turd. And then Stanley Kubrick said, you can if you freeze it. <laughs> uh, I'm just reading this from the retort. Wikipedia uh, about the day the clown cried the film was met with controversy regarding its premise and content which features a circus clown who is imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp people have put out long extended kind of clips and stuff and he did interviews there was like some interview on like Swedish television or something and you can see little bits and pieces and it, Harry Shearer saw it right there are people who have seen it yeah people I think people own copies and it's one of those that's like passed around especially with the like generation that you know came before the one that's in reigning Hollywood now like I think it was one of those that like people would show at parties and 
you know, sort of like a, an early viral video before there were there yeah. was such a thing. But it's yeah, it's pretty locked down. Another obscure '70s movie I watched was called "Harry and Walter Go to New York" with James Caan yeah. and uh, Elliot, Elliot Gould. Gould. Yeah, and, uh, I get that confused with the other one. So there's another movie. What's the one that's they're they're gamblers? Oh yeah. Oh, Banana uh, California Split. Yeah, California right? Split. I always get those movies confused, right? Yeah, that makes sense. It's around the same time. California Split is on my watch list. I haven't gotten to it yet, but um, I definitely want to check that one out. Harry and Walter Go to New York's not good. It's a it's the budget. <laughs> Chris is going back to his notes. Um, scratch that one out. Well, I would say it's not great. It's uh, the cast is misleading. Diane Keaton's in it, and uh, Penelope Ann Miller is in it. Wow. Or no, not sorry, uh, Leslie Ann Warren. Um, not Penelope Ann Miller. Um, it's a great oh, and Michael Keaton is or not Michael Keaton, Jesus. Uh Michael Caine is in it. Um oh. sorry, <laughs> I'm writing a different movie. Every time you mention an actor, yeah. I get really excited. I know. It's like, oh no, no. Michael Caine's in it, and it's got a huge budget. I believe that they filmed on the Hello Dolly sets. <laughs> and the period stuff looks really, really good. James Caan actually fired his manager after the movie came out because he said it was ru- gonna ruin his career. Uh, and apparently the rumor was that the, the director came aboard and did kind of took all the comedy out of the movie. It's a heist. It's like a slapstick heist movie that takes place in the, in, in, around the turn of the century in San Francisco, I think. And, uh, or no, New York. That's in the title, Michael. Again, I'm writing a different movie in my head. But uh, it's it's not good. It's not good. Speaking of which, have you seen the Bill Murray clown yes. heist uh, film? Uh, not um, loose change. That's a 9/11 conspiracy film. Uh, what's the? <laughs> I've seen quick, that. Yeah. Quick. What's quick change? Quick change. Yeah. I. You know. I have to go back and watch that again. You guys talked about it. I remember at the time. I've seen it maybe ten years ago, thinking it was good but not great. But you guys talking about that's, that's it makes about right. me want to check it. Check it out again. That's about the right right review of it. Uh, I still love that movie. Um, the fortune cookie with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. It's uh, I believe Billy Wilder directed the film. It's pretty good. It's uh, stars a forty-six-year-old um, Walter Matthau who looks like he's on death's door. He had <laughs> suffered a heart attack that year, and he won the best supporting actor for the part. But it was one of those where I was watching it, and I was like, Walter Matthau has always looked sixty-eight, <laughs> always old. He's yeah, got that always and old skill. I I looked up his age and I was like, oh my God, he's only a few years older than me while they were filming this, <laughs> and he looks like he could be my granddad today. That's like there's um, some character in What's Up Doc that Rick was pointing out was like four years younger than all of us. Yeah. <laughs> and he looked like he was seventy or something. We were just like yeah. oh, a ju- judge, right? Judge, yeah, yeah. was yeah. in his fifties. Um, yeah, it's uh, it was good. I, I I I watched it pretty late, so I was kind of dozing in and out. But um, it was a it was a good film. I, I re- recommend it. Uh, White Lightning because I wanted to watch Gator, which I haven't gotten to yet. So I watched oh, White yeah. Lightning first. Yeah. White Lightning was pretty great. Now you're talking. Uh, Night Moves with uh, uh, our buddy um, Gene Hackman, right? Hackman, Gene Hackman. Speaking uh, of uh, a nubile character played by an of age actress. Young Melanie, eighteen-year-old Melanie Griffith playing yes, sixteen. Yeah, so a film. couple early Melanie Griffiths film Griffith films in this list with body double. James Woods. 
Uh, yep. Who else was in that movie? James Woods is also makes an early appearance in The Gambler, which is another film that I watched, the James Conn version one. He's in that as well, like an early. Oh, I forgot about that. Plays like a, a side character in that. He's in a couple scenes. Um, the Conversation I had never seen, so I finally saw that, which was fantastic. Parallax View. This is when I'm getting into the, this is when I was watching <laughs> 70s conspiracy films, which I loved. It's one of the greatest films I think ever made. Um, Three Days of the Condor, which was one that my dad always talked about and I never watched, or he probably tried to show me when I was a kid and I got bored. Um, That was good. How did Uh, you feel about, as an actor, how did you feel about the transition, the romantic sort of, like how quickly... It's problematic. That, yeah, that whole and, journey uh, yeah. is problematic, but um, in three <laughs> days I, you're talking I, about. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. I watched it recently, it was just like, whoa, this is really. Yeah, I mean, he's really, really holding a woman hostage at gunpoint for like not a very clear reason, and this is a guy who played by Robert Redford, seems to be otherwise a very down-to-earth guy. I get the paranoia of why he was so freaked out that he had to hide out, but it's a Faye Dunaway. I mean, she has to jump through hoops to make that arc really work, and I think yeah. she does a really good job. I think it has yeah. helped by the fact it's Robert Redford. Robert and Redford, it, exactly. You know, I think people just, exactly. like, took for granted at the time that he literally could do anything in a movie and you'd still like him. Well, he's very attractive, unlike Warren Beatty. That's the that's the difference between those two films. You take an actor like a Robert Redford, and I, I just realized, I just remembered, I've seen Three Days of the Condor, your sister and I watched it together a long time ago. But you take an actor like Robert Redford, he does something, you know, atrocious that you get canceled for nowadays, and he gets away with it because, you know, clearly... If you were in a room with if I was in a room with Robert Redford, I'd be kissing on him, right? But <laughs> Warren Beatty, that ugly piece of he he's not going to be able to run around and get away with all that shit. Sorry, it's weird because um, to me, to me, they're kind of the same. You know, the same type of handsome and everything. Warren Beatty what? in uh, Bonnie and Clyde is maybe the most handsome man alive. Well, look. Yeah, maybe you just seen him. In, you don't like '70s Warren Beatty. You don't like the this hair. This is funny because I think you two, the, the you two brothers, look more like a Robert Redford type, where I arguably look more like a Warren Beatty type. So this is now, a problem you I, have with your. I'm not saying I like. I don't say I look like Warren Beatty, but I got you know curly hair and a you're, fucked you're up face about and everything. Warren, not Ned, right? <laughs> Oh, Ned Beatty, he's cute. No, he's yeah. like Ruben, Ruben-esque. Like cute as, yeah, cute Ruben-esque. as a button. Right. He's like a cherub. He's yeah. like a little cherub, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, Beatty gets more character-y, though. I, I say he gets less attractive with time. I will give you that. Whereas Robert Redford is good-looking his entire entire life. Was he in All Is Lost? Or am I getting yeah. those two guys yeah. mixed up? Yeah. Yeah, I was just was thinking about that. Fantastic movie. I love that movie. Don't watch All Is Lost on a plane. Yeah. Hot yeah. <laughs> I'd right. say don't watch All Is Lost if you're past a certain age because it's just kind of a, yeah, it's just like... I mean, it's all there in the title, isn't it, really? <laughs> exactly. Uh, Howard of, the Duck, I watched oh, for the wow. first time. I saw that opening night in at, I believe, the Orphan <laughs> Theater in Champaign, Man, which I'm... is now for sale, in fact, if you want to buy uh, uh, old-school movie theater from 19 the 1920s it's it's available for sale look it up online i would have killed to see that movie opening night as a kid my parents would not let me go uh i don't know uh, why i waited so long to watch it i loved it rated r 
Is that film rated R? It's PG-13, but there's a lot of strange... It's Tonally, it's all over the place. It's got a lot of... It feels like a kid's movie. It's Lucasfilm, which is insane. And it feels like a kid's movie, except there is like some very explicit sexual humor in it. Like, you know, he's... And boobs. There's boobs and in it. And there are duck boobs in it. Right. There, oh, are, right. Oh. there are topless ducks with exposed <laughs> duck boobs. Um, multiple times. They're like more than once. And uh, so it's just... Again, it's one of those movies where like if, if the script had been funny, everything was in place. The special effects were good. They were cutting edge for the time. The, an- the duck animatronic uh, or the costumes works. The cast is stacked much like that those duck breasts that I mentioned <laughs> but it it's just not funny it's just there are no good jokes in the movie it was written by Gloria Katz and William Huck who were the co-writers of Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom uh, which is a way better film than you know uh, than Howard the Duck but uh, I don't know about Huck, that. Yeah, Huck, a controversial well, statement there well I, I'm I'm saying that knowing that Chris doesn't really like that film I'm saying this is where it rate where it ranks but William William Huck that. also directed Howard the Duck it was his first he was mm. like a Lucasfilm guy and it was his directorial debut and I just don't think he was the right guy for the job. If like Ivan Reitman or somebody had done it, then it, I think it would have been a different story. But yeah, I I haven't seen it. I I remember being very disappointed that I spent money to go see it. Yeah, in movie theater. It's not for the especially with the names behind it at the time. You yeah, know, Jeffrey Jones. Jeffrey you know? Jones. Who's who's yeah. honestly as problematic as that man is. Uh, oh he, right, I forgot about that. Yeah, he is great in the movie. I mean, he's a terrific yeah. character actor, and yeah. he doesn't. I mean, he does an amazing job with that part and playing a possessed guy. He does great with it. Arguably, he destroys uh, what's-his-face from Men in Black. It's a much better much better performance of the same part of D'Onofrio's character in Men in Black. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's just not very good. Um, and and it's, it's, it's weird because it's in that era of, like, you forget that there was a time before big celebrities were doing animated characters' voices. And so the guy who plays Howard the Duck, the lead of the film, uh, is a guy that I hadn't heard of before. But you just the whole time I'm like, why didn't they put John Candy in this movie? Why didn't they get like a famous comedian to do the voice of Howard the Duck? Or like Rodney Dangerfield would have been perfect. And like had him do it and ad lib jokes. Instead, they just sort of got a voiceover actor who was like not funny and not very good to, to play the part. So I, I think it's inter- I think voice. it's a really interesting timepiece, and then you could just feel Tim Robbins is like mugging throughout the whole movie I because he's trying to make it funny and it's it's impossible. <laughs> uh, Leah Thompson though is uh, she deserved better, um, and then I I just re- re- rewatched Blade Runner, uh, the final cut, which it gets better and better with each viewing. And then, uh, uh, and then it finally, gets better and better with each edit that yeah. seems to come out every <laughs> yeah. every ten years. But that final cut, that final cut's really good. I think that that's it. I it really is. It lives up to the to the name. The, I think that's the one Thomas and I saw. It, I think it's cut. the one that's now the predominant version that he lets lets out, and it is it sets up the sequel the most smoothly. Mm. Yeah, um, the sequel refers the sequel. to the final cut version of Blade Runner. And that's about it. That's so that's that's you're all caught up. How is Gator, by the way? Should I should I watch it? I love Gator. 
Great. Lauren Hutton. Record. Va 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 voom. Yeah, she's a fan. You know, Gap, right? A Gap can be very attractive. Yep. Agreed. Lauren Hutton, David Letterman, uh, Paul Shear. Paul Shear. What's the guy her name? On uh, Taskmaster. <laughs> That's his name. The sidekick. Uh, Alex Horn. Alex Horn. And Sorry. the woman, the woman that used to go on Letterman all the time, and she was in that uh, um, Scorsese film with, uh, you know, the Joker ripped it off. Oh, and the King What's of his, Comedy. Jerry Lewis was in it. Yeah, she was King of Comedy. Oh right, right. Oh, Sandra Bernhardt. Sandra right. Bernhardt. Oh yeah. yeah, of course. Good look. That's a good looking Gaps cover <laughs> of the show. <laughs> Warren Beatty might have a little bit of a. And gap oh, on Anna Paquin. Too. Anna Paquin's a good looking. Anna Paquin. There you go. I shouldn't have had my gap filled. Should have, should have stayed with the gap. Oh well. Just get the bandsaw out. <laughs> I, at this point, I've replaced all my all my front teeth. Don't drink and trampoline. Jim, were you were you with us that night? <laughs> I don't think so. You weren't there. I oh. miss all the good yeah the good nights. I don't know. <laughs> you know, this is our Midsummer Man episode. We should probably get into <laughs> our discussion of the three films. Jim, did you watch these films? Yes, I did. Ooh. <laughs> now, did you guys re-watch The Wicker Man for this episode? I was going to, and then I decided no. not to. <laughs> I, I did the same thing. I was going to rewatch Midsummer too, and then, then I thought more about it, and I thought, I'm too sensitive. Rick is too sensitive <laughs> to watch Midsummer again, but he'll still, he has plenty to say about it. A virgin policeman played by the Equalizer trades in his 80s-era Jaguar for a seaplane so he can nobly investigate the case of a missing girl on a remote British isle. To a soundtrack of diegetically infused musical numbers, our virgin is both offended and tempted by sexually naked and ambiguous characters, the most aggressive being pregnant Bond girl Britt Eklund. In a scene I, I, already, <laughs> I already have to interrupt just because it's upsetting me so much. Because you called it a jaguar? <laughs> oh, jaguar. Sorry. Is that what it is? What it just is it? upsets what? me when I hear the word pronounced that way. The American way? You have a problem with the American way, Rick? I'll go on. Like, neither. if you're going to spend money some on, bizarre a, on, a, in between. on a jaguar, if you're going to spend money on that and, and give it the status, you should not call it a jaguar. Well, I don't own a jaguar. <laughs> Upsetting jaguar. <laughs> exactly. It's that so reminds upsetting. me. So my mom, when she quit swearing, I know Michael's heard the story, but when she quit swearing, she uh, came up with swear words that weren't swear words, so she could continue to swear because she told me swearing isn't classy. So because we ball, we both swore a lot around my house, pretty much throughout my whole childhood. And she, so she started calling people jagalines, <laughs> and so she'd be driving around, she'd be like, "You jagaline," <laughs> and I'd be like, "Mom." That's not any more classy. In fact, it really sounds like worse than what you'd say. And then eventually she broke down because we are we were both garbage and, and don't aren't classy people. And she started swearing again. So then she added jaggling to her repertoire. So she started calling people fucking jagglings. So anyway, I'll I think just call she, it a I think she was just yelling at the jaguars that were driving too fast. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's what I'll call it from now on, a jaggling. So in a scene straight out of the greatest Atlanta episode, the Equalizer meets hippie Dracula, which only further arouses his suspicions. In his search, Virgin Policeman finds and continually remembers a series of clues that indicate that the missing girl has either been killed or is being prepped for a sacrifice. 
The goal of the sacrifice is, of course, to correct a recent rash of bad harvest. On his way to save the girl, the policeman steals a costume from a man he physically assaults and dresses as a coxcombed fool, thus completing his qualifications for the pagans as being the ideal tribute. He is a person of faith who came to the isle on his own will. He has authority and is a virgin person being fooled by the people of the isle and dressing the part of the fool. (laughs) This opportunity is too great for the island pagans to ignore. They burn our hero along with other sacrifices in a structure that is not as impressive as the 2017 105-foot Burning Man. Shout out to my friend Elo, who has built several of the Burning Men. Was the Burning Man inspired by the movie? I would think Probably, so. Probably, right? This is a you... movie that Chris, you and I watched together for the for my first time. I think you'd seen it. Yes. And yeah. I have a fond memory of watching this film. I think you mentioned at the beginning of the movie that um, my sort of love of horror films basically sprouted from us watching a bunch of them together. I didn't get into... I was a sensitive boy as well, Rick, and I didn't get into... <laughs> horror movies until my 20s. That's really when I started watching and then realizing that I had missed out and loved them. Uh, but a lot of that was watching horror films. I think the, uh, I think it really kick-started when we watched the original Romero um, uh, zombie films together, and then it kinda, I kind of went from there. Um, but I, I liked this movie. I actually liked, I liked it then. I liked it now. Um, I'd forgotten how much of a musical it really is. And I can't remember the term. I think you guys have used it on the show for when the diegetic. music... Yeah, diegetic music. You know, it's a diegetic musical. But it's it's fascinating how much singing there really is in, in the movie, especially in the first act. It almost beat for beat feels like a musical. Uh, and, then, and then it kind of goes away for a while and comes back at the end. Um, but I, I really loved it. I think the themes are very clear. I think it's a great folk horror film. The plot is very clear. Um, the characters' motivations are very clear. It's a good mystery. Even if you've seen it, this time it was sort of my... I was watching it to see if the payoff at the end really makes sense, and it does. Um, so I, I really I really liked it. I love it. I love it. I, I do remember thinking it's just such a weird movie. Um, and fun, and I and just sort of the paranoia of thinking you're the only person who's not in on whatever's going on, and like still pretty effective. very, I would imagine. Although I guess in the late '60s, early '70s, especially, you know, this is a Scottish film, so like the, you know, they're a little less hung up on nudity and stuff. But I mean, it's a very sexual movie. That scene where he's walking through the park at night, and there's just like dozens of couple couples all together. I mean, that's like a pretty shocking, you know, thing, I would think, too, especially for an American audience at the time. That must have been a very, you know, much... That that felt like it, that must have been an Ari Aster move of the day. And that reminds me of the... We were talking Beatty, this, the famous story about Warren Beatty during the filming of uh, Don't Look Now. Do you guys know that story? There's a very explicit sex scene in Don't Look Now between Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. In fact, it was the movie that motivated me to get in shape because I realized I probably looked too much like a naked Donald Sutherland. <laughs> Not that I've achieved my, my goals, but I was like, oh boy, that's probably what I look like when I'm having sex. I need to fix this. But uh, 
the, apparently, because uh, that's uh, who directed that, Nicholas uh, Reich. Yeah, Rogue. he yeah. actually. Uh, now the the legend is that he actually had Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie have sex in the scene for real. Mm. And Warren Beatty was on the set of, I think, Macabre and Mrs. Mill. No, he w- it wouldn't have been that. It was another film, maybe Parallax View. I don't know. Uh, but he found out that this had happened, and he flew to England to beat up the director <laughs> and Donald <laughs> Sutherland because they had they had uh, transgressed. Uh, Did he bring his fishing pole with him? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He beat him with something, but I I like I think that story is in uh, um, the uh, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls book, which is great. Oh wow! Yeah. See now you're now you're real. Even you now are screwing with the timeline, Michael, because the episode <laughs> that you haven't heard yet, we mentioned the film. Oh, don't look now. You think about like how simplistic initial films were, and then they added editing into it, and initially there was all this confusion on how to edit you know, scenes together where they would repeat things and then slowly the audience figured out what the editors figured out how to do it and the audience figured out what it was. And I'm trying to figure out if a movie like Wicker Man doesn't resonate with younger people. Like it has to be updated like something like Midsummer, because we're just as an audience in general, people are more savvy and more, they've been indoctrinated into much more like sort of like... Shorthand. Shorthands, yeah, exactly. And, and so in, it's, it's interesting to some people, like actors or people who are super obsessed with film, right, to look back at these older films and enjoy them. But do you think that that's not a general thing and that audiences are actually have sort of been taught out of watching movies like that and enjoying them? Or do you think, so there are timeless movies, but are those timeless movies timeless because people watched them when they were little kids with their parents or uh, Yeah, I, I mean, Thomas would probably like The Wicker Man, but he's been... Programmed, so I don't. Programmed, I don't, you know, it's right? Not fair, not fair comparison. Yeah, I don't know. I, think, I mean, I, I don't even know how many kids are watching Midsummer and getting it. You know, <laughs> that's like true. that's true. I mean, Midsummer is like a purposefully confusing film. I don't know. I mean, I watched Wicker Man at what twenty seven, maybe twenty eight, and loved it. I think it's like special effects. Right, kids can still enjoy Star Wars. That's why Star Wars didn't need to be redone, right? Or like those Harryhausen movies. Thomas watches them and thinks they're awesome. But you know, he's been raised on Marvel movies and, and those special effects. Those Harryhausen films are brilliant, but they suck compared to what well. And they can. almost add to the eeriness and the believability, right? Like that sort of stop motion judder. When I was a kid, it added an eerie quality to those skeletons or those monsters where I was like, well, that's just how this monster would move in real mm-hmm. life. You know, I would I, I, I like that. I, I sort of prefer this other uh, otherworldliness of the way that they move compared to like, you know, something really slick in CGI now. So I think part of that, too, especially with Wicker Man, like to me, the sort of old fashioned editing and some of the hand holding is sort of part of its built in charm. It kind of adds to the spookiness of the movie for me. And yeah, it's it's cyclical, right? So a lot of those conventions come back into vogue later on, right? Because people love that. And it's, so it's more just trends and whether or not something, a film from a earlier era fits in with kind of the return 
or if it's out of sync with what's happening now, right? So, yeah. But, I mean, to answer your question, too, I think, like, Wicker Man is obscure. It's obscure for a reason, you know. Uh, and, and I think, for me, I was thinking about this the other day, too. I just think that some, like, Star Wars or Wizard of Oz, some movies are just built to last. And sometimes that's just a happy accident, you know. You guys were debating, uh, I think, the Blues Brothers, right? And I was, I, which is, I hadn't, I haven't rewatched that one. I just listened to that episode yesterday, but it made me think that the discussion you guys were having there made me think about. Well, I was, ha- we were having this discussion in theater school, but it was, it was surrounding uh, the Merchant of Venice and the portrayal of Shylock, you know, and <laughs> right, how yeah. like, okay, this is a classic work. It's very problematic, and you know, part of the challenge of that play, or something like Taming of the Shrew, which is very misogynistic, and the characters you know, do the male lead male character does almost unforgivable things to gaslight and abuse Kate, the shrew, quote unquote. Um, that's sort of the challenge of these works is like, okay, how do we unpack it for for modern times? You know, this is just sort of a problem you get when artifacts and pieces of art, you know, last for more than probably their intention, you know. And also Blues Brothers, of course, was like started as a comedy sketch that probably wasn't thinking much further than the, you know, the five minute performance that it, that it you know, I, I don't think they had thought that world through and thought through what they were doing. I think they'd made that film with the best intentions, you know, and it's sort of as we all wake up kind of realize, oh, yeah, this isn't that this is sort of not great. But um, I think just some movies are built to last, and it's 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 you can't always make that happen. And I I love that it's kind of a sidebar thing, but the the idea that you know now somebody does a sketch on Saturday Night Live, and they're probably imagining every step of the way. Like if this sketch catches on, then we get the movie and then we do this and that and that, right? And it's really interesting because, yeah, it was like a more innocent time where it's like, oh, yeah, we're just going to do this thing. And then it slowly, organically explodes. Whereas now, yeah, it's all all about, like you said, Chris, the formula. But it's it's kind of sad that, and maybe I'm just being cynical, but I would also think if you were doing sketches on Saturday Night, night, Saturday night Live. I think everything's that way, right? Like a comic yeah. book. If you write a comic a... book, you think about, well, who'll pick up the rights to this? And you know, what will the TV show yeah. look like? What will the merch look like? And I think everything's sort of, I don't know, Michael, you'd know more about that than me, but it seems like everything's sort of programmed that way. I think there's a lot of that, um, too. I, I do also think that there's still a point where it's just two people in a room trying to make a comedy sketch work or two people trying to make a, a screenplay work, you know, but there's definitely, I think it for sure on the like production management side of things that are like thinking, oh, yeah, and this could spin off into its own thing. You know, and look, like even Star Wars, we mentioned, like, I should just, I just sort of want to note for posterity. I mean, that even comes with its own issues in terms of, um, you know, it's an all white cast, the original film, you know, a lot of the accents from alien characters have been pointed out as being sort of problematic. (laughs) You know, um, it's a very Eurocentric point of view because of the people who made the film. And it's possible that in 20 years, people are don't think it, you know, Harry Potter is not going to age super well. It's a very, you know, if they do a remake, I guarantee you the lead kids won't all be white, you know. 
In fact, there was an uproar because of the stage play they cast a black actress as Hermione Granger, which makes perfect sense. You know, there's no reason she 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 can't be. Um, you know, she's not described one way or another skin color wise in the books, but people freaked out about that, and then people thought that was really cool. So you know, it's just some things last, some things don't, and there's a myriad of reasons. Sometimes it's content, sometimes it's editing, sometimes it's you know. Uh, gets boring, <laughs> but well, I think that's the question, right? Should that we ask, should this film be lost? I think the decision, right? Which I, th- I think this is really like a man. yeah, I like that's at the heart of this show is really kind of unpacking that, and going okay, it does this work and does it last, and if so, why, and if not, why not? Would you tell your coworkers that you watched it? <laughs> Wicker Man, yes, hundred percent. I would recommend this film. I would rewind it, and I would. I think it should be found. Your coworkers are a little different than our coworkers. <laughs> well, right now I have none. Right now it's just me and my dog in my pandemic apartment. I forgot. One of the things Michael's taught me is don't talk about, never ask an actor what they're doing. What are you working on is probably the worst <laughs> thing you can ask an actor. Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue, but that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco joint with a special guest. We share taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're going to love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town. Wicker Man 2006. A male bee, otherwise known as a drone, has unprotected sex with human women. This already creating... sounds like an incel like uh, session. Neil 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 Labute brings it out. I think. Yep. Yeah. It's just just happens. This is you just evoke a... him and and this happens. Look, I got this off of Wikipedia. Had unprotected sex with human woman creating child. Instead of knowing about that child and committing to that human woman, that drone chooses to live his life as an electric glide in blue, driving the West Coast highways like John, Ponch's handsome partner from the 70s TV show Chips. Drone cop sucks at his job and fails to save a woman and her child from a burning car wreck. Reeling from his failure to save people from fire and tanker trucks, drone cops raw-dogging Human woman comes back to haunt him as old girlfriend writes him note saying they have child together and child is missing. Drone cop can't fly a seaplane, so he gets someone who can take him to a remote island where the missing girl was last seen. On the island, he asks questions of a bunch of people. The male drones themselves don't talk. They do work and make sex for the queen bee and the other females. All the females subversively answer drone cop's questions for a while, Till they finally just tell him that the girl is going to be sacrificed. 
Drone cop puts on a bear suit disguise costume and allegedly rescues the missing girl, but he's a fool because she leads him right to the queen bee. Queen bee hobbles drone cop's legs with a big hammer and pours bees on his face. Drone cop is put in the wicker man and missing girl burns him up. Yeah, I would disagree with one major plot point in that, which is she left him. He did not leave her. Because remember, the, the, the women are to blame in this film. She left him years ago and broke his heart. Oh, right. I sort of implied that he made the decision yeah, to become a yeah. cop and not be a father. Yeah, no. Child. He was des- clearly, as the film... Again, this is the hand-helding and the hammer-hitting that this movie does. He would want nothing more than to be with her. But because she's an evil woman, she had to go back to her commune. Where she really turns out to be super evil. Right, because women are evil. That's the lesson of this film. That's the lesson. <laughs> I just thought it was a bee allegory that it was the big hive, and you know the the drones were just there to be used, and the women were there to be like life, like life. <laughs> Jim, can you Jim, imagine is... a society that's just run by women, Chris? This film will show present that horror men, to you. Men would die. Yeah. Men would be. We're not needed just for anything away. but our seed. Yeah. And that's right. Yeah. And our, our our brute force labor. Yes. <laughs> we'd be hobbled, and and we'd be swimming in bees. Mute. We wouldn't be able to get a word in edgewise. Jim, this is a a pretty modern film for you to watch. Uh, well, I say from an American perspective, American film. What was your uh, your take on? The Wicker Man, two thousand six. Oh, well, I yeah, this I just watched it today. It was the last, you know, I watched uh, Midsummer first, which was was great. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, I don't this this sound this was definitely uh, very uh, well traditional. You know, I it felt like you were saying what what was the movie? We, oh, we were watching Mountains in the Moon. The that episode you're saying how it felt like a movie from the 60s and this didn't feel like that old but it was this just felt like an a kind of a very run-of-the-mill generic kind of you know horror movie <laughs> and it wasn't even that scary <laughs> I don't know. it wasn't yeah the bees the bees didn't scare you the cage of bees no. I don't know, maybe no. it's because i just watched you know midsummer just before <laughs> or a couple days before and it's just like well, that's a horror did, movie. <laughs> did you watch the unrated version? No. Of of the Wicker Man. So did no. you see the bees? Yeah, there's bees in the 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 uh, PG thirteen version. Yeah. But did you see where they put the bees on his face? Because allegedly the the leg smashing and the bee face. It's cut. different. Yeah. I watched the PG thirteen film too, and the famous no no not the bees not the bees scene is not in it. They, oh, really? they cut away when they when they first capture him and he realizes what's going on. He runs into the crowd. The crowd surrounds him. And in the unrated version, they break his legs and then they put the bee helmet on him, which I watched on YouTube so I could see it. And I was very, like one of the Amazon reviewers that I, I read, I was very upset that I had sat through that whole film to see that scene and it didn't happen. <laughs> um but what you hear is, and it was funny as I was watching it, because I kept going, well, when's the bee thing going to happen? And then once he was put in the wicker man, I was like, they're not going to put the bees on his head in the wicker man, are they? Like, this, what's happening? And I realized, okay. wait a minute, this isn't, the scene's cut. But what happens yeah, is, wow. in the PG-13 version, they surround him, 
and it crossfades before they break his legs, but you hear him screaming, and then you hear the sound of his legs being broken as they're carrying him up to the Wicker Man. And I thought to myself, oh, I bet they filmed the leg-breaking stuff, but they just cut it. Mm -hmm. So I I did see the unedited version. Yeah, so did I. That's what I saw, but... Yeah, I, I thought it was the PG thirteen. Like, oh, it's and Rick even and worse Chris than this. in the in the unrated version. Is there a scene at the end with James Franco and uh, John Ritter's son, Jason Ritter? There's a scene oh. at the end of the film where James Franco and Jason Ritter are at a bar on the mainland, and James Franco is playing a young cop, and Lily Sobieski and then Nick Cage's ex-wife show or ex-girlfriend they show up posing as like hot singles and they pick up the guys and it sort of alludes that these are the two next victims and that there's going to be a wicker man two, starring james franco and jason ritter as young men trying to escape the bee colony yeah i don't remember that yeah i didn't see that i was just like i wrote in my notes all caps like james franco like what a weird (laughs) what a weird face to see pop up at the end of that film well, and in the unrated version, you at that point know it's not going to be, there's not going to be a sequel, right? I mean, some time must have passed. The director's like, okay, this right. is not well received. We don't right. need this sequel bait at the end. Right, right. <laughs> Which I actually would like to see that movie. I mean, that, that, that to me is like, okay, let's, yeah, let's move past this. What does, what does the sequel to this film look like? Like, what, where does this go? Because that's the thing that I find fascinating about the original Wicker Man, which we didn't mention, was, you know, at the end of the film, Woodward is telling uh, Christopher Lee, you know, when your crops don't grow next year, they're going to kill you. And he says, I know they'll grow. I know they will. And you're sort of left with the you know the the your it's left to the imagination of whether the ritual actually works or not which i which Ooh. i like well then the ritual didn't that's they maybe that's the the james point of the james franco scene right maybe the ritual did not work but it, but, they, but they, they but they but i but it, but they always need men for the island so they you know what i mean so they've always got to go out and get men to bring men to work for yeah them. there's there's not a yeah that's the thing is it seems like the the men are there no matter what right right being yeah they just need to yeah so i think it's like they're gonna get the men no matter what but maybe in the sequel yeah the ritual doesn't work and they have no honey (laughs) (laughs) now i'm excited for a sequel it'd be great if they made it now with like james franco and jason ritter like you know 15 years later Yeah, but it would be great if it was all like a quarantine movie somehow. Yeah, it's all on Zoom. <laughs> they all, they all on Zoom. <laughs> Just oh, it'd but be they, a great idea. Then no, what could they do to ruin it? Oh, let's do it. Let's do it in our apartments. Yeah, and then no like internet the, on the island. You know, the, the victim. You know, James Franco will have to put himself into the Wicker Man and set the fire himself. <laughs> it's all virtual. It's all right. VR. I thought this was a unnecessary remake. Uh, to Jim's point, I think that like if there, it, you know, even though Ari Aster doesn't really point to the Wicker Man directly, but like that's the better remake of the movie if you would consider it a remake. This one I felt was completely unnecessary. It undoes all the good stuff from the first film. It overcomplicates the plot. I felt like sort of, sort of to, to Jim's point, I think the roteness of it 
is that I feel like this is like a mid-2006 studio film. It feels like there were a lot of notes where they were like, well, shouldn't he know the people? Why don't why don't why don't why doesn't he know the person he's going to the island? You know, like which was not a problem in the first thing. You know, the mistake of like they clearly someone was like, well, he can't fly his own plane. He's a traffic cop. Why would he be flying his plane? So so then they had to write in like someone to fly him there. You know, and then the little girl couldn't just be a missing girl. It had to be revealed that it was his daughter. You know, there's a lot of just like uh, like the B stuff is unnecessary. You know, why can't it just be crops? I guess because it's the Pacific Northwest and they're making honey. I get it. But it's also, it's not just honey, it's honey and crops. Well, my so theory is of, that was the whole structure of the film that, that literally, I, I hold to that he meant them to be a colony and that the, the muted men who just did their work were drones and that she was the queen bee. Right. But if that's it, why they had all the bees. I get that. Then why don't just you make a new movie about a bee colony where men are treated like drones? Why is it a Wicker Man remake? You know what I well, mean? Well, because you get all those uh, Wicker Man fans to come back, you know, in droves to see <laughs> yeah. this film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the four of us watched it. So. Also, um, <laughs> A poor man's Vera Farmiga, who was the uh, the lead actress. She was sort of a Vera, Vera Farmiga type, but not Vera Farmiga. So, like, clearly Vera Farmiga passed on this movie, but <laughs> or didn't want to work with Nick Cage or or something. But um, or Neil Butte. Uh, I also did not buy that those two had any history whatsoever. You know, my question was like, was she always this weird? And if, like, he's just, like, you guys were engaged and you never knew about the island where she's from. And, you know, it's just like she was super weird. Was she always this weird? And if not, why isn't he more concerned about her behavior in the film, you know? And, I, and the whole idea that, like, they even got to one of the cops that he works with. Like, she was in on it. Like, the, 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 the unpacking for this plot to make any sense, it really starts to fall apart once you pick at it. And the original film, they just, it was, it's already a leap that, like, Christopher Lee and his little village of people found a virgin cop. And that was the big part, the whole reason that they um, burned Ed Woodward in the first film is because he was a virgin. They needed a virgin to do right. the ritual. And that's completely fucked up in in uh in the nick cage movie because he's clearly had sex a lot and has a kid basically doesn't hold up to the robert redford faye dunaway test right so for them you believe the relationship (laughs) even though it was only 10 minutes old whereas with nicholas cage and whoever played the opposite so so again is that an acting problem you think i think it's a script problem i think it's just script problem direction problem and you know the film is also uh you know, I know it's Neil Butte, but it's it's unnecessarily misogynistic too. You know, you can't watch that film without just going like, "Okay, we get it. You don't like women." And Michael, I think when we're talking about the believability, I don't think it's script. I think it's whether or not the actor is attractive as to whether or not you would That's believe. True. You know, the relationship. So where do you so where do you go with Neil Cage? Where are you on the Neil Cage spectrum? I don't know a Neil Cage. I know a Neil Nick Cage. Oh, Neil Cage. <laughs> Nick Cage. Sorry, Nicholas Cage. Neil. Neil Butte. I was thinking Nicholas as you guys Cage. were talking that he's one of those ever old kind of guys, and that most of the movies he's in, the women he's with just look way younger or way out of his league, with the exception of Wild at Heart. I actually bought that relationship. And. Um, 
And another movie that I failed to mention on my list, Valley Girl. He's fantastic in Valley Girl, and he's super good looking. He had a he was a good looking dude when he was. I mean, he's still. I mean, I get you know he's become more charactery. You would say, but like he's like a he's. I would say he's adorable in Valley Girl. <laughs> Raising Arizona, he's. Oh yeah, he's great in that. Handsome leading manish. Except he's got a mustache. He has a mustache in an era where the mustache was not. It you know, it's when the mustache handsome. was the mullet. <laughs> right, exactly. Eighties. Late mid late eighties. It's funny. I thought in Valley Girl he was attractive with the exception of his chest hair, um, and I'm a man with a lot of chest hair, so I'm starting to notice a pattern here and what I see is attractive and not attractive. <laughs> a nice person in a relationship with a douchebag who wants to dump her when the nice person's crazy ass sister kills the parents and herself. Feeling pressure not to be a douchebag, he invites the nice person to join him his other douche friends, and their one Eurotrash hippie buddy on a trip to the hippie Swedish commune. Arriving at the commune, they all do insane drugs, giving the filmmaker even more devices by which he can flex his extreme aesthetic powers. There is a bunch of micro- to mid-level aggressive transactions between the friends, the commune, friends, and others, etc. This reaches an early peak when two old people are pushed off a cliff to die. On drugs... The douchebag is coerced into having sex with one of the commune women. Also on drugs, the nice person sees her alleged boyfriend doing so and is distraught. By winning a Maypole contest, she is elected to pick the last person to die, which is, of course, the douchebag. They put him in a bear suit and burn him. The nice person smiles. <laughs> Did they, I felt like that um, description was a microaggression. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Did the old people get pushed off the cliff? No, they jumped. Yeah. So I, I think the mother, the father, the sister, that's three impactful deaths. The two people that f- jump off the cliff, that's five, and the three people in the temple, so that's eight. I thought the rest of the deaths were just so rushed, and it did feel a lot like that last horror, horror Halloween film where I thought that Halloween film was going to be have more substance to it and really was just a slasher kill after slasher kill and I think this film went into that mode for a little bit and then came back except those deaths all primarily happen off screen right yeah it's supposed to be that a slasher folk horror movie is taking place but it's not experienced by the viewer it's only experienced by the victims that's intentional because he wants happens in a slasher film too there's like you know, in a classic in like a lot of the Friday Thirteenth, a couple people disappear. You don't know where they went, and then the the final girl finds their heads in a closet, or you know, there's they sort of turn up later, dismembered, just like the guy did when he was the eagle body or whatever they called it. Right, but I think that the eagle body. I think that f- for the most part, most slasher movies, the fun is the kill. And the, you usually see most of the kills, the innovative kills in a slasher flick. Where this one, you really don't. You only see the ones that are part of the ritual that is taking place. All, all the deaths that you see in this movie are all the public deaths that everyone sees. The ones that you're not counting are all the ones that happen privately. I agree with that. That's why I said a lame slasher flick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a big fan of this film. I actually like it. I I just want to clarify that I've seen 
I saw the theatrical version when it came out once. I was going to see it a second time, but then something like a horror movie happened to me where before I was meeting my friend for drinks, I realized I hadn't eaten. So I shamefully, while chastising myself, went into the Taco Bell drive-thru. And while I was waiting in the Taco Bell drive-thru, a Taco Bell employee who was in high school, who was on her way back from her lunch break, was rushing to get back into the Taco Bell on time, tripped, fell, and smashed her head against my car and shattered my rear uh, passenger side window. And it was it, it hit my car so hard that it felt like somebody had hit had hit my Prius with a sledgehammer. It rocked on its wheels. It was like something straight up out of an Ari Aster movie. It was <laughs> and so we had to wait for the cops to come and I missed the movie the second time in the theater. So I have this I'm always associated that story with this film. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never eaten Taco Bell again. I didn't for years, and then I went through question, a yeah. guilty streak, <laughs> and then uh, that cured me of it. This summer, I ordered the very uh, gorgeous A24 Director's Cut edition of Midsummer. So I watched that for the first time for this for this podcast. He talks about how this movie is for the boys to go on the trip. It's a folk horror film. For her, it's a fairy tale wish fulfillment film. So you're watching sort of two movies at once, and the one that's most heavily featured in the movie is her point of view, is her fairy tale wish fulfillment. And I kind of like that. If you kind of look at it, and it is like as you guys described, like it's a breakup movie. He wrote it during a breakup. It's a film about getting rid of that bad person in your life, and I think that really works thematically or not even bad person, just the ex. You know, in this case, the ex is a bad person. So the way he avoids the misogyny of Neil LeBute and Charlie Kaufman is by just flipping the gender role. So if we actually reverse it, it's a hugely misogynistic movie, which I now hate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Um, Yeah, I wonder. You know, I was a little critical in my... And yes, I, I was... I was loading my description, and I call on that guy a douchebag. I don't know if he was or not, right? Was he? Was I felt he like he a, was. He seemed like he was, right? Yeah, I think the, the sin of the film, the sin that he makes is he doesn't break up with her when he should have because her sister committed suicide and murdered her parents. And the sin of this film is that because he didn't make that choice, because he wasn't honest with the woman he was in a relationship with. The rest of this shit happens, and he pays for that sin at the end of the movie by being killed. She has lost a family who are taken, and this is the thing that I really like about the movie. I'm going to get nerdy about it, but um, you know, the first scene takes place in the dead of winter, at the darkest time of year, where the rest of the film takes place during, you know, obviously the brightest time of year. And they talk about the dark god, the dark one who who, you know, that's essentially death and that the maypole dance is to exercise the dark one and keep him away from the village. And it can be argued that the dark one already killed her family, right? In fact, her sister even says in the message, it's just so dark now, I can't take it anymore. So this is a movie about a girl who's lost her family to the darkness and then finds a new family in the light, you know, as horrible 
or as horrific as they also may be. It's still another dysfunctional sort of codependent, you know, relationship I think she's getting into. But I like that symmetry. And in fact, my friend pointed out who I was watching with, at the beginning of the movie, firemen enter a house that isn't burning to to collect the dead bodies of her, mm. her mom and dad. And then the film ends with the house on fire with no firemen, mm. which I also really, I like the, yeah. I yeah. like the symmetry of, of, of the beginning and the end of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to have to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> and I would, I would also really, really recommend the director's cut. It's a, about a half hour longer. It comes in just under three hours. But the thing that's really good about it it's not like there's big structural changes. There are a couple full scenes that were cut, but it, the pacing, I think, is a lot better. It's not as rushed, which is, I think, one of your complaints, Chris, that the evolution of what happens in the film is more earned. And you actually get a better sense of, I didn't like the boyfriend character, and I didn't really like his performance, actually, when I saw it in a theater. And having re-watched it now, he gets more screen time, and they just he just pads out scenes where there's a little bit more to his arc, and you kind of get, get that a little bit more. And the academia stuff that felt a little truncated in the, in, the, in the theatrical cut makes a little bit more sense. And you buy it a little bit more that these guys would be competing for a thesis and all that. That stuff becomes a little bit more interesting and more well-earned in the director's cut too. That's the only complaint I had about it was how kind of obvious the boyfriend is just this schmuck or whatever. You know, he's yeah. just kind of like, obviously we're supposed to not like him or he's he's yeah it's more it's more nuanced there's a scene at the beginning of the film where he actually invites her on the trip during an argument and you get to see the dynamic of their relationship a little bit better at the at the front of the film and Mm. i i guess this was the cut the director's cut is the cut that ari aster brought to a24 and said this is he cut it down from four hours <laughs> and gave them this cut, the director's cut, and they said, "We get it, we love it, but it's too long, and you have to take out at least twenty more minutes." And he then had to go in and take out some things that I think pick up the pace for a movie-going audience, but for what the story he was trying to tell, I felt were watching the director's cut, I was like, oh, this is essential. And in fact, I I'm having a hard time seeing what was added in. You know, I can't imagine this movie without this version of it. It doesn't change the film in any way. It just sort of, um, it earns it earns it a little bit more, I think. I think I might like it. I think, I think I you like would, the Chris. There's, there's, in fact, there's a scene that sets up what happens to, you know, because there's a couple from London that get killed off. And there's a great scene that's cut. This is the one that I really noticed, like, oh, this I have not seen. There's a scene where after the old people have been killed, they do a mock ritual where they tie up a boy from the community and they act as if they're going to drown him in the river or in the pond or the lake. She freaks out and tries to save the boy and then everybody laughs and the boy, they say, well, the, the, the gods will be appeased because the boy was brave enough to go through with it, but we don't actually have to kill him, is basically how that wraps up. And then she pulls her boyfriend aside, and she's like, this is getting fucked up. So we actually have a scene where she is like, what the fuck is going on here? Do we need to leave? And that's at that point where he's like, I think I'm going to make this sacrifice stuff the subject of my 
thesis. And then they kind of have an argument about that. And you realize that he's just really being an opportunist. He's taking advantage of like this, these people dying and sort of being like, I'm going to write a really fucking hot paper on this, you know? Um, but later when we see the girl from London, her body is wheeled out in a wheelbarrow and she's dressed in the same clothing as the boy, and you realize that they had drowned her, and that oh, that was wow. the real sacrifice. And see, that's mm-hmm. something you don't get from the theatrical cut. It's still visual, but all those off-screen deaths fill in a piece of the ritual puzzle that you kind of, I, I do think it gets sort of disserviced in the theatrical cut version. Well, there's a mini Wicker Man for you, right? As they, they are led to believe that a young child is going to be sacrificed, mm-hmm. which then leads them to their own demise. Right. So that's a, a mini mini episode of Wicker yeah. Man tucked within the massive episode of Wicker Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though it's longer and I complained about the length the first time I talked about it, I think if the thing that really bugged me was that it just rushed through a bunch of shit that it just felt like a, it went from being a, a gorgeous film, like a, just an absolutely beautiful, masterful film, and then they just blew through a bunch of shit. And I was like, whoa, 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 what happened there? Um, so maybe if it took its time and there's a little more exposition or I don't know what you'd call it, but a little more, um, development, character development, I think they enjoy that. I have a question for you guys. Um, unless, uh, 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 he cites, um, uh, Powell and Pressburger as huge influences on this Mm. film. And I, I haven't seen the red shoes. If I have, it's when I was a kid, but he specifically cites black narcissists and, um, and uh, the Tales of Hoffman, which is a, an opera, um, as the two major like influences on this movie. And I was wondering if you guys had ever seen those films, because now I've watched the trailer for those, and I'm like, oh, I might have to go down this wormhole now. Black Narcissus is Scott's. I, I just have chills thinking about the scene with the woman on the cliff. There's a lot. It's It's not in any way violent from what I remember, but it it really does a great job of sort of transmitting and putting you into uh, insanity, I guess it would be. From what I remember, it, 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 it's definitely psychologically creepy. Like, and, but also pretty, not over the top, but yeah, the scenery, the composition, the colors and everything like that. Not so, yeah. That's the thing is, there's also Peeping Tom, but I'm trying to think if they're just, but that's just Michael Powell, um, and the Which Red Shoes. The Red Shoes really has, creepy. yeah, the Red Shoes has the crazy stuff, but it's it's more like mania, right? That's what I think of when I think of the Red Shoes. Whereas Black Narcissus is a lot more upsetting. <laughs> the Red I, Shoes is upsetting too. <laughs> I thought I saw Black Narcissus, but I actually saw Black Orpheus. Yeah, but, yeah, um, I, I conflated those two as well. I when I, I thought that that's what they were talking about, to be honest. And then I looked it up, and I was like, okay, completely different. Black Narcissus is nuns going crazy on a cliff. Uh, <laughs> uh, Abbey, what is it called when it's uh, a nunnery? I can't remember what it is. Yeah, nunnery, convent. Convent. That's thank you. That's the word. Convent. A house, a house of evil people. <laughs> um, that's right. A bee yeah, farm. Yeah, as someone who's had uh, problems with nuns, I think you should definitely see Black Narcissus. I think that'll. I, yeah, I remember watching that. That uh, what was that one about a mule? That one, that that um, 
Oh, or yeah, Clint Eastwood movie. Don- oh, no. Not the not the Robert <laughs> Brisson film with the and, and uh, donkey with the donkey. <laughs> That's an amazing and, like, movie. Bel- let's just talk Beltazar. let's talk about the yeah, Balthazar the what is it's in French, but I, I can't remember. But yeah, the main character is a donkey that just basically stares at the screen forlornly for <laughs> but it's it's like you're crying like for the donkey. It's like his his basic it's it's like taking the Alfred Hitchcock thing to the extreme, where it's like Brisson is proving that he doesn't need actors; he can make a donkey into <laughs> the most dramatic character, and it's really just this it sad. Sounds sack like donkey. he's sort of uh, he's it's the prototype of a Pixar film. <laughs> like he's he was yeah. making Pixar movies before there was computer animation. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 an emotional film about a donkey, but yeah, it's also. <laughs> deeply problematic if you're an actor especially right it's just kind of like it's like i don't i i could i could put anybody in a movie i could i could make a movie with a donkey and make people cry that's that's really what i think his goal was i was wondering about uh well influence speaking of influences have you any anybody seen it was songs from the second floor which is an, another swedish movie but it's uh, roy anderson it's another Swedish director, but it's from, I think, 2000. I saw, I didn't see in the theater, but saw a few years later. But there's a scene, the scene in Midsummer with uh, the quarry, you know, with the old people jumping off the cliff, is seems definitely like an homage to, there's a scene in Songs from the Second Floor. It's a modern society, and they uh, perform a sacrifice and I don't want to give it too much away, but it's it's at a quarry and a cliff, and mm. this it's different in that in Midsummer there it's not the sacrifice they're jumping off, but this is like later on when they're sacrificing people. It's like a combination. Of the, in uh, songs from the second floor, they push somebody off a cliff, you know, in and it it looks very similar. It's like this big quarry and a big cliff, and it's modern times. That's the only different thing. It's it's like a, well. It reminded me of the, uh, they're talking about the, uh, uh, other people have mentioned this, the, the lottery at the end of Midsummer. obviously when it, it beca- you know, it's like a bingo, the yeah. big bingo thing. And I was like, Shirley, oh, it's uh, the lottery. Jackson the, nod. Yeah. yeah. And so in Songs from the Second Floor, it's kind of that same thing. It's this modern society. It's present day, but it's like this ancient ritual and they're uh, sacrificing people for the good of the community. Well, I think he's influenced by this painter, who uh, I have a book of, uh, who's called George Tooker, who's an American painter, but he made these kind of in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I don't know how, I I think he died a while ago, but they're like kind of bureaucratic offices and these really cold, sterile, just people looking dead, just kind of standing in lines and things, you know, these horrible kind of modern, like in bus terminals and things like that. And uh, Roy Anderson movies are like that totally, but it's it's interesting because when you say songs to the second floor, it sounds like a a, a musical about two millennials falling in love. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a very happy sounding thing. But I it's looked definitely... it up. I looked it up, and what uh, excites me about it is that Benny Anderson from ABBA did the music. I didn't know that songs from the oh, second wow. floor. Yeah, <laughs> but they're 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 definitely funnier. They're very dark, dark comedy, but way funnier than Midsummer. You know, Midsummer. That's what I liked about Midsummer too. Was there's, there's some comedy, very yeah. 
subtle, you know, it was but I, definitely totally. But, and but, he says so. And I think the director's cuts even funnier. It's like, it gives you a little bit more room to laugh at the absurdity of some of the stuff yeah. that's happening. Yeah. And songs from the second floor in the other Roy Anderson movies are like, well, I've only, I think I've only seen one other one, but they're, they're way funnier. I mean, but they're not, they're very grim. Michael, would you have suggested that he break up with her after her parents and sister just died and not take her on the trip? Would that have been the better thing to do if he were a better person? I, I, I don't think it's necessarily that. I, I think I think the, the, that's the sin. Like, again, it's sort of like, and I'm saying the, like the sort of original sin that the character makes. is I think it's the lesson is when you know you're not in love with somebody, when you know that it's time to end things, it's your responsibility to do that. And I don't know in a literal sense if that was the better thing to do, because obviously he and his friends were doomed either way. And it's it's arguable that if he had done that and she had not gone there, she may not have had this cathartic experience to to get her through her grief and her breakup and find a new family. And, and Pele is obviously set, setting up him to be the new guy in her life. I mean, clearly... You know? Well, that was my question. Do you think Pele, was she going on this trip come hell or high water based on Pele's manipulation of the situation? Do you think Pele, in advance of them getting on the plane, intended for her to go? I think the more the merrier for him, for sure. I think she might have been uh, the X factor that the variable in the equation. I don't think it's like, oh, she was meant to be the May Queen. I think Pele likes her. I think he's playing the role of like the the friend of the boyfriend coveting the guy's girlfriend. I think he wanted her to come. But I think, you know, it was his job to bring new blood to be sacrificed in this nine person ritual. And he had his four. He had his four. He had the or he had the he had his three. He had the three guys. And then his buddy brought the other two. The one elder at, at one point says, thanks, you know, and we thank him for his whatever perception of like human character or something for bringing these people or whatever. Yeah. So it's, he's hunting these people yeah. you know, for people he's sent out to find. And yeah. so he and obviously I, wants her. Or I think he had his body count. And then the fact that she came along was bonus. And then it worked out for the community even further. I mean, he's certainly manipulative. Well, he wanted her to come. But. There was a fan theory I read, and the, and I, I think Ari Aster directly addressed it and said it was not true, but there were people who thought that Pele actually was responsible for the family's death, right? Like oh, it was yeah. Like, That's what like I was going to ask. I don't going, think so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, yeah I, I get it. I get that's a fun fan theory. But I, to me, it's more meaningful if it parallels the, you know, that at the darkest time of year, her sister yeah. who was prone to depression and schizophrenia was succumbed by the dark, you know, succumbed from yeah. the darkness. Yeah. And, and, and all it took were family. a few phone calls from Pele to kind of whisper <laughs> in her <laughs> to ear. To push her over the edge, right. <laughs> I have a question for you guys. Um, this film for me, as does Hereditary, which I'm also a big fan of, scratches an itch for me when it comes to movies and comic books um Ari Aster mentioned that you know he adds these details he adds things that are you know not seen sort of like how these fan theories sprout up but that he likes his films to be a little bit more interactive and one of the things that is in this film is all the runes that you see in the movie 
all have specific meanings. And I read this really great article. I'll see if I can dig it up and give it to you guys. Maybe you can add it in your show notes. Where someone went through and analyzed every rune that showed up on the character's costumes or in the formations that they're sitting in on the stone tablet, and they all track. They all line up with the meaning of that rune. They're not used randomly. And it's Mm -hmm. sort of this extra reward if you want to analyze the movie and look up these runes, it brings even more meaning to the film because they're obviously not discussed. They're just shown in the, in the movie. That kind of stuff I love. I love doing a little bit of additional detective work. Now, obviously, I didn't go to the, the lengths of like unpacking all the runes, but that doesn't mean that I won't do that. Do you guys like it when movies have sort of that added value to it? Or do you think that, you know, you should walk out of the movie having a very clear, like anything that you see, you should know. Like, for example, in Hereditary, the sigil that they use for for um, Pele, I think it's or, uh, King Pele from... So all that stuff, the ritual in that film, those that character that they're talking about is from the Book of Solomon, which is a medieval grimoire about all these demons and stuff. It's a real thing. And they infuse, he infused that stuff in the structure of the movie where if you were a nerd like me who had done research on, on, on the keys of, lesser keys of Solomon, you're going to go, oh my God, this is actually referencing a real thing, and the sigil is actually that demon symbol and they don't explicitly explain that in the film, but if you go do your research afterwards, you'll find articles and research on that character, that demon that they're summoning. It's not just made up for the movie. I love that stuff. It's great when they use historic, well, literature and stuff from the past because it's usually really good. It's like Greek, you know, any kind of ancient mythology and stuff like that it's like it's a reason why it's survived it's really great and it's resonance and it's great when movies and things use that kind of stuff payman payman was the demon sorry i wanted to get Uh, that right it's great when writers do their homework or you know it's like much deeper than the it's not just some superficial thing and there's much more subtext or something yeah i think that's what makes you know something a, a great work of art Right, as if there's a lot more going on underneath, and even if you don't see that. So, for all the stuff that you see on screen, and even the hidden stuff or the stuff that's not just there when you first see it, on rewatching it, you see those things. That's great. But then also just use it, it being a more firm foundation, you know, for the whole piece. It's kind of like, oh yeah, <laughs> like uh, like the actors have to wear period costumes, and then the underwear has to be. This of right. the period too. It's like, well, well why? Nobody's going to see it, and it's like, well, maybe though that that'll make a difference, and 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 I think it all feeds into that idea, and just from spending an interminable amount of time in art school critiques and things like that, it's like that's something that's really pushed is that idea that it doesn't, like, you can have the superficial thing that people see, but if you don't have something to back it up with. Right, and you haven't done something underneath it. That's where I guess hypercritical art types. That's where it all breaks down. If if they start digging and analyzing, and there's nothing there, that's when everything you get called a fraud, basically. Or it's like, oh, you're not. No, this isn't art. This is you're just you're just pretending, you know. And then somebody cries well, in their critique. That's it's like oh, I'm not pretending. 
I just liked it. There's that Tony Scott movie where they reference the conversation right. by just throwing in a raincoat, but there's really no point to it. It's just, hey, and, we saw the conversation, and so you should give us some points for that. And throwing uh, in Gene Hackman, you know, he's in the right. movie, you know, and so, but it's like, there's no, it's just, hey, Gene Hackman's in the movie. We're going to use his photo from the conversation, and then we're going to have a character wearing the same raincoat that Harry Call wears in the conversation, but there's really no nothing more than just, hey, hey, everybody who liked the conversation, look at this. So I'll say as the, as the least intellectual person on this podcast that um, I actually do like it when, when things go deeper. Uh, Michael, actually, in your writing, I see a lot of that, and I admire that you do so much research and, and know the foundation or the, the, the history of what you're referring to, because I just think it makes for a richer text. So I think I appreciate writers that do that. I don't want to have to know those things to enjoy the movie though. That's, and so like, I think about, there's a scene in Annie Hall that what my, one of the funniest jokes in Annie Hall to me is when Alvy Singer's being hassled by these two Italian gentlemen. And they're like, this is Alvy Singer. I saw him on the tonight show, blah, blah, blah. So Diane Keaton gets out of the cab and he's like complained to her. He's like, can you believe it? He's like, get me out of here. I'm standing here with the cast of The Godfather. And then they walk (laughs) into the movie theater. And so to me, I thought that was, you know, funny because if you just tangentially knew The Godfather, you'd be like, oh, he's making fun of these two dumb Italian guys that are bugging him. But the joke I enjoyed was... Here he's standing with Diane Keaton, the cast of The Godfather, and so yeah, that yeah, I thought yeah. that was a reference. I don't know if it was a dual reference or not. I'm sure it was intentional as Woody Allen, but of but course, yeah. The, to me, because I knew more, it, it it was a richer joke. But at the same time, the joke worked whether I knew that or not. And so, right. as a I guess a microcosmic example of what I like in a film is. I don't want to have to know all of Nordic history or whatever to, 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 or to know the history behind those runes in order to enjoy that film. If that makes it, if I do know it and that makes it even more fun for me, I love that. And I also do like that the film is well founded, um, which I've always suspected of his films. Uh, you know, I think he's, he's, he does beautiful films. I'm just not sure his narratives all come together very cleanly, at least for me. Well, and he does a and thing where he, 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 and, and this is sort of like, will be interesting to see as he evolves as a filmmaker, because while I appreciate what you said about stuff that I've written, Chris, thank you. I think also I've made some mistakes in the past where I'm like, and Ari Aster has said, you know, he wants things to be confusing. You know, he wants his film, it's intentionally, and that might be a trap that he's setting up for himself. I I feel like in the past I've sort of done stuff, you know, I've written stuff that I'm like, I want this to be sort of unconventional and a little weird. And what you just end up learning is like, well, that just makes it harder for people to get. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, I don't and that think can be it, lazy too. And, that and, can and be an excuse. It it can be. I think it can be. I th- for sure. I think it. I think the intention, at least in stuff that I've had to learn this lesson is that I'm trying something that's a little bit more experimental when nine times out of 10, 
the conventional thing is always best. And it's best to sort of layer the conventional thing with new interesting tidbits or bring yourself to that convention. But if you're going for unconventional, if you're going for weird, you really, really have to nail it. Otherwise, people are just going to scratch their heads or people aren't going to want to buy your script. For me, the rest of what's going on in his movies far outweigh that for me. That at the end of the day, and, and to be honest, perfectly honest, if, uh, when I first watched Hereditary, loved it. When I first saw Midsummer, I was a little on the fence. And then something about that movie... It, it it turned out to be one of those movies that I thought about probably every day since I saw it. It's one of those movies that snuck into my imagination. And I'm not hyperbolizing. I think there isn't a day that goes by where I don't think about Florence Pugh in that fucked up dress flower at the end of that film. You know, the visuals of that movie have have cemented themselves in my subconscious. And when a film can do that, to me, something is really working about it that's far more effective than 99% of the other movies that go in and out of my brain. Well, guys, I think we've we think we did it. I think we solved it. Um would uh, would uh, so I guess we solved. So you're wrong, and we're right. Is that what we solved? Um, I I think that a lot of my I if I were to sum it up, <laughs> I think a lot of my criticisms are fair. I think that um, if I see the longer version of the film and uh, the way Michael described it, I'll bet you I like the movie. I I do think I sensed. That shit was missing, or that shit was just too rushed and wasn't well enough developed. And I'm I'm fine with watching a three-hour film that makes a lot of sense and really hits me hard and makes me think about it every day. Which you know I I definitely think about this film a lot. I'm bummed if a movie's like almost there and there's just some real misses. And it does sound like Midsummer could have been a masterpiece had it not been for the studio notes. So I think what we've come to to realize is studio notes ruin ruin the films. <laughs> All right, well is that it, gents? We don't really do any plugs here, Michael. I'd like to plug you guys. Uh, don't <laughs> listen to these uh, self-deprecating Gen Xers. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. Give these guys a five star review. More people got to hear this. You know, you want to share this podcast with the world. You got to do it. You can't say that. You well, can't say that. On you this can't. Podcast. But I can't. <laughs> Chris has a lot of rules. Uh, you probably know. Yeah. Too bad I'm here to s- not like like uh Danny showing up at the Midsummer Festival, baby. I'm taking that May Queen title and it's my show now. Michael, I like sometimes when Michael takes me out with his friends, he just has to apologize for me. He's like, All right, so my brother in law's a little O C D, so just you know, relax. <laughs> you know, he's gonna hit you with some rules. Just, just go with it. Just go uh, with it. Yeah. Um, if people want to listen to Bigfoot Collectors Club, please check us out. That's the only thing I would say. I do remember one time you told me, this is another lesson that you you taught me, is I was complaining. I think the same same complaint. People weren't listening to my music or whatever, and you were like, well, you know, Chris, if you want people to like the music you make, you might want to try making it entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, and I think that was... You know, that was not a, a harsh jab because I was also talking about how I wanted to make things that were cathartic 
and I thought that people should should enjoy the catharsis. But then that kind of it, it kind of resonated with me. You know, you get up there and take a shit on a stage. There may be only ten people who are going to enjoy that, you know, and they're already G.G. Allen fans, and and you know they're going to move on. Hey, man, but, there's um, a fan for every shit you take. There is an right? audience member for every one of those turds. Never forget, <laughs> right, Rick? That's that's right. <laughs> I know. Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it.